Welcome to Lawyers Living Well, a production of the State Bar of Georgia's Attorney Wellness Committee and the Lawyers Assistance Program. Lawyers, this is your resource for all things wellness. and welcome to this episode of the Lawyers Living Well podcast. I'm Lynn Garson, Chair of the Lawyers Assistance Program of the State Bar of Georgia. And today I have the pleasure, and I do mean pleasure because we've been talking about this for a long time, of interviewing Ms. Stacy Dugan, high-powered partner at Greenberg Traurig, turned therapist and mental health counselor and advocate. So that is quite a switch. And we will be talking about that. Stacy, you know, I, I've told you, I spoke about burnout on the last episode and I'm still talking about it because 18 months into the pandemic, everybody I know is still talking about it and feeling it. So let's kick it off today with that topic of burnout. And then we'll talk about your personal experiences in the wellness space, both as a therapist and counselor and personally. So again, topic of burnout first. People are burned out. They're talking about burnout at work, burnout at home, no boundaries between work and home. The list goes on and on. And before we dive into that, you're very uniquely positioned to do this, and I'm glad you can. Can you please walk us through the biology of burnout? Because I've heard you do it before. It's very important to understand. Sure. For, first of all, Lynn, I want to thank you for having me. Um, I always enjoy our conversations and I, I, I do love talking about uh, mental health, especially as it relates to lawyers and well-being. Um, probably about 70 percent of my clients now are lawyers. So I do see a lot of lawyers in my therapy practice. And you're absolutely right. And we've been talking about burnout for a long time. And what I noticed is during the summer, I was starting to see higher levels of burnout than I had in 2020. Because people are, have been dealing with this for so long. And just the, you know, the unending nature of it. And we had a couple of opportunities where we thought maybe we saw the light at the end of the road. And then it turned out to be, whether it was the Delta variant or other things that have kind of kept us back, you know, announcements of office openings, and then they're reversed. And so there's just been a lot of chaos and a lot of anguish, and not to mention the expectations that folks brought to the fall, parents thinking their kids were going to be able to go back to school and they could go back to work. So there's just been a lot of dashed expectations. Adam Grant, who is a industrial psychologist from University of Pennsylvania, wrote a great article last spring called what we what we are experiencing is called languishing. And it's kind of like this absence of mental health. So it's not depression, but it's just sort of this feeling of just not feeling good. And so while that doesn't necessarily equate to burnout, it absolutely absolutely is the stop on the road to burnout. So, so let me get back to your question. First of all, I think it's helpful if we talk about some other terms, because before we go into burnout, there's stress and there's anxiety. And we all kind of know what stress is, which really is when the demands that we're experiencing in our lives are greater than the resources that we have to bring to meet them. And so as we start to feel less, less equipped to deal with the stressors in our lives, our stress increases and it can increase to anxiety, which often can look like a lot of what feels like uncontrollable rumination of the past, 
or projections of the future. So it could be, I, I know this, I, I know I'm going to lose this hearing. There's no way I'm going to be ready for it. And so spiraling into the anxiety over something that's coming up. So we all know what stress and anxiety are, and they can be really debilitating. If it gets to burnout, we are really in trouble. Burnout actually was just recently recognized by the World Health Organization as an occupational hazard. So burnout, even though we use it colloquially a lot in different contexts, it actually is an occupational hazard. It is related directly to work. And the World Health Organization defines it as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And what it involves is signs of exhaustion, disengagement, and a profound feeling of cynicism. So disengagement is, you know, I don't even know what I'm here doing this for. Like, I don't see any connection between me. I don't even know who the client is. This can happen a lot in big firms or, you know, I don't understand what I'm adding to this. I'm sitting here in this room going through thousands of pages of documents. What's the point? And the feeling of cynicism really can be, you know, it doesn't matter what I do because this is always going to be the same. So we start to lose connection between what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so when we go to burnout, then that means that the, the biggest threat about burnout is that it can actually lead to a physical or a psychological trauma. That's where we see people having heart attacks or strokes, or they could be having, you know, a, they could be overwhelmed by stress to where they have to be hospitalized. So burnout is really a very serious risk. So I always ask people, when you start to feel the stress and you start to feel that the resources are being diminished by the demands on you, we must, we've just got to pay attention because what's happening then is, you know, when you go into burnout, a lot of times you, you people find themselves dissociated. They're just sort of feeling cut off. Does that make sense to you? It totally does. I mean, I know I was fortunate enough, I'll say that sarcastically, to get pretty burned out that period of about three months of it that ended about 10, 12 days ago. And I, I got to the point where I almost couldn't focus my eyes. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, it was so hard to concentrate. It was really taking me a lot longer to do things than it normally would because I just could not gather myself, you know, and bring my normal forces to bear on what I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, and unfortunately, and I, I really appreciate what you just said, where you felt like you couldn't even, you know, harness your thoughts. You felt very, uh, it sounds like dissociated. And a lot of times what people do is they just keep their butt in the seat and keep trying to grind on. And I promise you that is not going to work. So when we're in that state where we feel like we do not have the ability to focus, we don't have the energy to do the work, you got to take a break, even though you may feel like I can't afford a break, I have to get these, you know, this assignment done. But all we're doing is burning time at that point. And so when you, the kind of mental state that you just described is what we call being in the freeze mode of the brain, right? That's a very primitive part of the brain where we're cut off, we're usually depressed, we feel like we don't have the energy. And so we need to energize ourselves. And we'll talk about how we can do that. But, but really knowing what's happening is important so that you know what to do about it. The other way that the burnout can show up and, and obviously stress and anxiety can show up is through what we know the fight flight response. 
That's when we're really activated. You see a lot of lawyers who may, you may see it as anger, impulsivity, anxiousness, reactivity. And, you know, we see a lot of lawyers in this state because the law by definition is an adversarial profession, right? And so we all know lawyers that will fight about anything. And a lot of them really relish the fight. What I find is that a lot of my clients who are lawyers are really getting worn down by the fight. And it goes back to burnout, right? It goes back to feeling like, what am I even doing this for? What do I care about this discovery request? You know, so it's really important to understand, you know, sort of what's happening. And so when we're in that high reactivity mode, that's when we can spin into, again, reactivity so that we're not able to respond to what's happening around us. We are just reacting to it. Yeah. You know, when you said worn down, that that really hit home for me because it really is like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, the battery is running out and, you know, wish as much as you might that you want to get through this and, and you're going to move forward and you're going to do it. The battery's running out. And there's nothing you can do until you literally, as you said, push your chair back and decide to do something about it. Well, I love that you just used that metaphor because there was a 2016 Harvard Business Review article that was, that's been one of the most widely disseminated articles in HBR history. And I think the title was, Resilience is Not About How You grind it out or push through. It's about how you recharge. So that battery metaphor is beautiful because what we have to know is that when that battery is wearing down, engaging in more activity is just going to continue to wear it down so that it goes out, right? And so pushing ourselves back, you know, pushing the chair back is how do we recharge? What do we need to replenish our energy, to fill our own cup? whatever metaphor works for you, because that's what's needed in those times is to actually recharge those batteries. And that takes time and that takes a break of some sort. And for some people, it could literally be a five minute walk outside. It doesn't have to be, you know, a three week vacation to Hawaii. Vacations are really important and I don't want to underestimate their, uh, their importance, but, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do in the moment to help recharge those batteries. You know, you've actually gone over into my second question, which is perfect. And you've sort of led into it beautifully because I've seen many experts talk about what I consider, I'm not trying to be, you know, facetious, but lofty ideas like meditate, connect to others, positive self-talk, service to others. Those are four, actually, this expert from Yale that I watched a brief podcast on recently. And those are great if you've got the time. Mm -hmm. But I really love what you're saying about, I can. I think of it as like, we, we're getting granular right now. We need to get granular. We're not up there with the, oh, I'm going to go learn how to meditate and I'm going to take an hour here, you know. I certainly didn't have that in the last three months. Like I said, it's gotten a little better for me now, but the thought of taking an hour during that period never would have happened. So five minutes though, the Calm app, you know, that says time for you to stand up and stretch. Two minutes, everybody can do that. What I, I wanna ask you of, of, about other ideas, but I also wanna have you talk a little bit about the discipline that it takes to do that because we are so 
driven many of us and we sit in that chair and we will not get up not yeah. for anything i don't care what say oh i just need to do this one more oh well i i finished that contract but i can just start this one and you know and the hours go by literally so to me it's number one it's discipline you can tell us everything under the sun and if we won't do it right what good is it so well, you know, with a little tongue in cheek, I, I would uh, maybe gently push back with you're using the word discipline to describe that mind state and say maybe it's a little bit of stubbornness, uh, you know, because the discipline, it would feel more like discipline if we knew it was actually helping us, you know, like discipline I think of as I'm going to go ahead and keep running because I'm training for a, you know, a, a marathon and so I want to be in shape. That that causes us to sit at our desk, even when we know we are incapable of getting something done, is really so self-defeating. And I want to go back to your question about the list, because I really appreciate that question. There are, there are so many resources that we can get overwhelmed. And when you're feeling overwhelmed by the, by the realities of your life, the last thing you need is a list of 22 things that you too can do to help you, you know, get your act together. So what I would really encourage folks to do is number one, think about what you need. Are you in that detached, dissociated place to where you need energy, or are you in that reactive, overwhelmed place where you really need to calm your body down? Because those, knowing what you need is essential to knowing what, what you should do. The other thing is really think when you read these lists, think about, can I picture doing this? Is this something that resonates for me? For somebody that has a mindfulness practice, meditation feels a lot more accessible than it does for someone who's never done it before. So really personalize these lists to see what resonates for me. Now, one thing that I'm going to offer as pretty much a universal is the breath, because our breath is the most powerful tool we have at our disposal 24-7. So, and it's so simple. If you feel like you're really in that, that, you know, that sort of submerged place where you need energy, you focus on the inhalation. You're focusing on bringing energy into your body. You want to activate yourself. If you're in that overstimulated reactive space, you focus on elongating the exhale. So literally spending just enough time to do four intentional breaths. Nice, smooth inhale, slow exhale. So that if, so, and you want to make, again, if you need energy, make the inhale a little bit longer. When I say a little bit longer, I literally mean only like two or three seconds. If you need the calm, use the exhale, elongate the exhale. And that literally taps into the parasympathetic nervous system and will calm the body. And I really want people to understand that where you have a calm body, the mind will follow. We have to start with the body. And one of the real challenges is that I find lawyers are so disconnected from their bodies because we're not used to checking in with our body. How do I feel? We think everything that's of importance is from the neck up. It's all the brain, right? It's all my intellectual power. Right. But our body is sending us messages all the time. And so the more we learn to sit and just tap into it, the more we can identify what do I need right now? And so have your own two or three standbys that you use, your own go-tos that you know, if I play music, I'm going to feel better. 
if I go for a walk, I'm going to feel better. Do what resonates for you through your own experience. And that's what I would suggest that you, that you let lead you through this, you know, through those lists. You know, that is wonderful advice. And I, I agree with the breath work that's worked for me. Number one, I don't care how stubborn I am about wanting to sit in my chair. Even that part of me knows it doesn't take a lot to take three or four breaths. You know, even I can like say, all right, enough, you know, just stand up, stretch, you know, right. You know, this is not, you know, you're not taking anything away from your law practice by doing this. You're only helping yourself. And I love that you didn't give a list of, well, here's my list, you know, I have the four things because that makes so much sense to me. It's gotta be something that appeals to you personally. You know, I'm not gonna do, for example, I belong to a 12-step meditation, a women's meditation group. I neither am in 12-step, nor am I a very good meditator, but I like the group. And every time that the group does meditation, I was sort of happy when we were doing it virtually because we all, you know, turned off our video and I would go cook dinner. <laughs> and after the 10 minutes were over that everybody meditated, uh, they would come back and we'd all stretch, you know, and I go, oh yeah, oh, it felt so good because <laughs> I was too embarrassed to tell them I'm just the world's worst at meditation. But so it's whatever appeals, you know, and whatever you're going to do. Absolutely. And I, I, I think that's hilarious. And I think I have, I give you a lot of credit for calling yourself out and let, you know, telling your secret, but it is, it sounds like what was really important for you in that experience was the connection with these other yeah. women. Yeah. And so you optimize that and you, and you, and you met that need. I also want to say as, as a, you know, a meditator myself and someone who really believes in the power of mindfulness, I have never met anybody who thinks that they meditate correctly. Everybody <laughs> thinks that they do it wrong. And it is meditation is actually as simple as I will say it is, but we don't believe it because especially lawyers, we will complicate anything. And, you know, meditation is really cultivating an awareness of the present moment. And this is the kicker though, without judgment. And that's where most of us run into trouble. I'm doing this wrong. What's my problem? Why can't I sit here? Why can't I let my mind go blank? And that's not what meditation is about. Meditation is about just being with what is and dropping the judgment. And it really is that simple. So I do want to encourage folks. What I want people to understand is that they can seek micro moments of mindfulness or relaxation. And then you can build. If you start off saying, I'm going to meditate 40 minutes a day, you probably won't get through one day. It gets overwhelming. And the last thing we want is for relaxation to contribute to your sense of overwhelm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of talks I give, I, I always weave in this friend, Nancy, um, taught me about mindfulness. It's the only thing that's ever really taken, you know, for me. So I was driving down the street and I was freaking out. I was, oh, you know, so in the past or the future, just like you're talking about and all she said to me is, where are you right now? Well, I'm in my car, you know, I'm driving, there's the exit that I'm going to get off. What's happening? Nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm driving my car, there's the exit. Uh, the sky's not falling in, nothing's happening. And it really made me see one way, at least for me to get into the present moment, this where am I, where am I right now? 
you know, because if ever there was a person in the world that lived in the past and in the future rather than the present, I am the poster child. So, you know, that's that's a heavy lift for me. And it's but it's so important. You know, and I realize that it's very important. It's just it's the work in progress. Um, Let me ask you something. Just this is going back to your years in practicing law of what you think about this, because in terms of burnout, it's I've started recently thinking about a couple of institutional fixes that the firms themselves can put into place. And one is to really educate everyone about the delay function of email. You can delay any email you want to, to whenever you want to, if you've, everybody's got Outlook, I think, and I'm sure you can do it in any system. And that will prevent you from imposing on others a flood of emails that came through when you were working at one in the morning and they were asleep, but they wake up and they've got an inbox that's got emails, not only from you, but from eight other people who were up all night. And it is absolutely, it it shatters people. I mean, I've talked to associates that just were really almost ready to leave the practice because of that, the burden of just that. So that was an idea. Tell me what you think of that and also any other sort of institutional fixes. Well, first of all, I really want to encourage you and the listeners to check out the work of Cal Cunningham. I'm pretty sure he's at Georgetown, but he is a writer who writes about deep work, which obviously that's what lawyering is. It's deep work. It's any kind of knowledge work is deep work. And that's why most of us were attracted to the profession. We did not want to sit there and tick things off our to-do list all day. We wanted to be able to get into the meat of whatever area of law that we, we chose to practice. And what Cunningham writes about is that shallow work, which email is probably the best example of, can take up, it can suck up all of our bandwidth. It adds to the stress exponentially because not only are we tied up with doing these more mundane things that don't seem to matter, but we're not attending to the deep work, which is what we want to be doing in the first place. We can take up our entire day with this shallow work. And he argues, and I think uh, very persuasively, that email has completely gone out of control. That email really was designed simply more to deal with like an office-wide memo or a while you are out kind of memo. And instead you can be sitting at your desk and all of a sudden you get an email from your boss that with a very long body of the email that says, what do you think? And you know, here you were working on an assignment. Now you're turning to this. You don't know like, what do they mean? What do I think? Do they want to know now? What do I think about what? And this may have been just the the you know the part the senior partner thinking, oh, this is interesting. Let me see what Lynn thinks about it. But Lynn doesn't know what to do with that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can feel right now how that would trigger anxiety, right? Absolutely. We are getting lobbed with these things countless times a day. And it is really, it's a way to sort of, you know, it, you're it. You know, I've I've responded. Now it's in your you know. Now that I, you, until I hear from Lynn, I don't even have to worry about this anymore. And so it really it is really a huge contributor. So he talks about this, and it's very difficult because especially when you talk to lawyers about institutional fixes, the first thing they'll do is tell you why it won't work. But I do believe that it is a cultural shift that needs to happen. Where you know, and you hear some um, big employers now have 
rules where it's like, we don't want any emails going out after say 6 PM. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, or we want, yeah, we want to limit emails to this and people feel like that's so artificial and that it's not, it's not helpful. No, the, you know, by the way, the clients will never go for it, which again is an answer that you always get when institutional reform is being resisted. But if you say to a client, we are really trying to create an environment where people are taking care of themselves so that they can better do the work that you're paying us to do, yeah, they may not be happy with it, but it's a process. And I would rather know that people are trying to care for their most important resources and those resources are what I'm trying to deploy to get my work done as a client. So it, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of resistance, but there are people out there who are thinking about these things and they have some really good ideas. I, I know that there are some large institutions out there that are working with groups to come up with solutions for this that are even taking into account their outside counsel. So, you know, there's the seismic shift is beginning, but you know, I, for one, wish it would happen pretty quickly, and I'm, I'm just not sure how that will be. I just pulled up something I had looked up a while back, not too long ago. Portugal makes it illegal for your boss to text you after work. It is against the law. So can it be done? Yes. A country has institutionalized that. Um, so, you know, just saying. I'm not going to hold my breath for that one, but no, 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 we can futz around the edges for sure. Yeah. And the interesting thing was the only thing, the the law that they didn't pass was not being able to say that you're going to turn your device off Yeah, and unplug. And they, they actually put that up as part of the law and it got shot down, but you know, that would have been pretty interesting. Well, Adam Grant, I want to just offer this little tidbit that I, that I got from him because he talked about how, when he was sort of in this uh, languishing place, that one of the things he realized he was doing was turning on the TV and not knowing what he was going to watch. And so, you know, you sit there for 45 minutes and all you've done is flip through all the streaming you know, platforms and you yeah. haven't even, you've watched 10 minutes of that, three minutes of that, whatever. And so, you know, one of the little uh, pieces of advice he offers, which I think is pretty intelligent is, you know, don't turn on the TV unless you know what you're going to watch. So you get that one for free. <laughs> All right. That's going to be tough because I'm one of those people. I got to find a series that just works perfectly for me. And then, you know, okay. All right. But thank you. Thank you for that one. All right. We are going to shift gears completely to a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart. So I'll, I'll dive into that. You and your husband are a white couple with two black children and they're both boys. And I know because we've talked about it, that the time after George Floyd's murder was a terrible time for you as parents. For me, and you know, I could be out of touch, but lately the conversation about the pandemic and, and George Floyd and, and everything affecting diverse populations disproportionately seems to have gotten quieter. I know in Georgia, we've got the Ahmaud Arbery trial, so, you know, maybe higher profile here, but it just seems a little quieter. So I wanted to ask you, you know, which is sort of a given, are you still feeling the extra weight of that? And if so, what are you doing to get through those particular, very particular fears and stresses? 
Yeah, well, I appreciate the question um, because I do need to, you know, take my own medicine, which is to take care of myself. And there's nothing more stressful than worrying about your children. I mean, nothing. We we adopted both of our sons at birth. They're now 22 and my oldest son is going to be 25 next week on Thanksgiving Day, actually. And when we chose to adopt uh, biracial babies, we knew we were taking on a an awesome responsibility to make sure that these children would be able to grow and 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 develop their own identity and unlike a lot of biracial families because my husband and I are both white we don't have a biracial family you know in which to to raise them and so that was a very intentional and very specific responsibility that I knew we were taking on and I knew that whatever I did I had to do my best to meet it and frankly in 2005 it is exactly why I moved my family from Miami to Atlanta because my boys at that point were in kindergarten and second grade and I believed that Atlanta was a place where they had more of an opportunity to organically explore their identity and I'm really grateful that that has in fact been the case. They both self-identify as as black men. My older son is gay, so he's dealing with a lot of um, identity issues and, and I worry about his safety a lot and I worry about my younger son's safety a lot. Raising black sons is terrifying. I will never forget in 2012 when Jordan Davis was shot and killed because the music in his car was too loud. And my boys were adolescents then, and I, it was the fear of God into me because I knew that, you know, they love to listen to hip hop and who, what kid doesn't like to listen to loud music. And it really, it really grabbed me by the throat. And, and so, you know, we hear a lot of times about the quote, the talk that you have with your black children. And it's not the talk, it is the talks because it's a series of conversations and for a long time, my kids would, you know, roll their eyes and mom, I know, I know, yes, if they, if I get stopped, this is what I have to do. When George Floyd was murdered, they, they were a combination of so angry and heartbroken. And they had so, they had so much pain around this. And, you know, again, there's really nothing worse than when you know your kids are in pain and you can't take it from them. And so we had a lot of conversations about it. And they, you know, for me, I just make it my responsibility. I know when you say that the conversations seem to have slowed down about race, I'll tell you who it hasn't slowed down for, and that's for black and brown people. It never slows down for them. It's we as white people who can lose that thread. And to me, that's evidence of white privilege. That is white privilege. I don't have to think about it. But two of the people that I love more than anything on the planet have to think about it every single day. So uh, there is a wonderful writer and activist named Resma Menikin, and he says that white people need to be doing this work with each other and for each other. And we need to stop asking black and brown people to be our teachers and be responsible for teaching us what we need to learn. And so for the past year and a half, I've been part of a group and the name of the group is WhipGost, and it stands for white people getting our you know what together. <laughs> and, you know, and we, we meet every week and we read books and we have conversations and we try to hold ourselves and each other accountable. And to me, this is work that never ends. 
I believe so much in what Brian Stevenson has said, who he is just such an amazing lawyer, you know, until we really deal with the original sin of slavery in this country, we are not going to be able to, to get to a place of equality. And so that's just an example. It's just a sense of, of what I do to try to stay connected, feel like I'm staying accountable and show my love to my kids, you know, and just hope to, you know, I, I just hope to contribute in making this world a better, safer place for them and for all of us. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, cause I have had such intense conversations with the same group of women, you know, that I was talking about earlier that absolutely dig their heels in saying that people should teach us if we don't know you know you know what is wrong with asking and and so that's a 10-hour conversation between you and me but you know it's it's really something even how to learn is something that is up for grabs and and hotly debated you know well, Even I wanna, something as simple as that, which would seem simple. Yeah, and I want to make a, another recommendation by a book from Clint Smith called How the Word is Passed. And it is a beautiful book. He's a, he's a poet and writer, and it is a beautiful book. And to me, one of the most profound themes that came in that book was how people of color are traumatized over and over again by the racialized violence that we are witnessing. So for us, it may make us really sad and it may upset us, but there is a visceral traumatization that happens to a lot of people of color, whether it's seeing George Floyd whether it's getting you know looked over at a meeting, whether it's getting stopped by a, by an aggressive officer, there are so many ways where that trauma is relived again and again and again. And I know as much as I love my sons, I don't have that reality. I don't know that reality. And so you know, I don't feel like the people who are being traumatized over and over again are the ones that I should now be saying, teach me, tell me, show me what to do. Yeah, no, I know. I know, like I said, we talked for days about this, I, but I will make one other comment because I know this in some arenas about myself. You are the bridge. There are very few people like you who can be absolutely the bridge between white people and black people on this topic because you say and fully admit you grew up, you know, you couldn't help it with white privilege, but you have black sons. There are not a whole lot of people that I know anyway, who could be a bridge like that to bring both sides to understand, I hate to call it sides, but all groups together to understand and, and you know, move forward. So, you know, that's a pretty unique position. I only say it about me because I seem to be a centrist in almost every way. So, you know, whatever my thoughts and, and politics and anything are, I can usually listen to anybody. And that's a fairly unique thing in this day and age. And I think it's pretty valuable. So anyway, uh, I digress. On to the next question, which is something that is central to what we both do on the Lawyer Assistance Committee, talking about what is offered by the state bar for folks who are struggling with anything from, you know, as you said, stress, anxiety, burnout, depression, you know, any issues. So we've talked many, many times. In fact, every time, you know, I, I do one of these episodes about the lawyer assistance programs, use your six, 
you know, the six prepaid counseling sessions, the peer program, which is peer to peer, as it sounds, no element of counseling, but just somebody who is at, at least also a lawyer and understands whatever you're going through, through that lens, if nothing else, and, and generally actually through other issues like, you know, recovering alcoholic or, or anything. And then the wellness website of the State Bar has a whole bunch of resources on there. And that's all great, but I mean, you are again in a unique position as a lawyer turned therapist and counselor and advocate to tell us, is there something else you'd like to see? Would you like to see these improved? You know, what, what do you think about what's out there? Well, first of all, I, I do want to acknowledge that the, the Georgia Bar is known throughout the country for its its efficacy in this arena. And I think that's important that we've been a leader and that, you know, I think we should be proud of the work that's been done. That being said, we're never, ever anywhere near being done with this work. And so we've touched on this before. And one thing that I, I find myself, the thought I find myself returning to is how do we really enhance social connection among lawyers? The research tells us that there is no more important factor to our overall well-being than social connection. The research also tells us that lawyers as a group tend to really minimize the need for social connection. So that there's a there's a tension right there. And so how do we connect people relationally? And I'm going to I'm going to risk being a little woo-woo when I say this, which I always try to avoid when I'm talking to lawyers, which is that how do we enhance vulnerability and intimacy within the social connection? Because when I say social connection, I do not mean showing up at a happy hour or showing up at an annual bar meeting where, you know, it's small talk and drinks. I'm talking about really getting, getting to know each other. And you were just telling me before about the, the Georgia Bar president who recently said in a public forum that she sees a therapist and how helpful it's been to her. And that's the kind of connection that I'm really yearning for. Because when you have somebody in a position of influence and power who normalizes seeing a therapist, that there's that that is more valuable than any program we can put together. It's she's walking the talk. And, um, and so, you know, I told you I belong to a conversation circle, you know, uh, to, to think more about how white people need to be more responsive to racialized uh, violence and discrimination. I think that, you know, conversation circles, and that may not be the word that we use, but getting people together with the, the intention and design for them to really connect and, and share personal things with each other. Because one of the most important things that I do for my clients is, I, first of all, I love research and most lawyers want to have research to back up whatever it is I'm saying, which is fair. But when we are caught up in anxiety, depression, substance use, suicidal ideation, you name it, we tend to feel very alone. And people are always just, even if they know it intellectually in their heart, they just always find it surprising to be reminded and to know that they're really not. So the social connection that I'm envisioning is about showing, embodying, you know, being with the reality that we're not alone, that other people know how we feel, and that by sharing our experiences, you know, we can help hold each other up. So I, I know that that might be a little bit touchy-feely for lawyers, but I do think that there, you know, that there are ways that we could strive for that that would be really helpful. 
you know, I think having been in management as a partner at Greenberg Traurig, you have some credibility behind uh, you that will allow you to go a little woo-woo without anybody, you know, thinking that, oh, she's, you know, just way, way out there. So, you know, you've got your creds on that. I think you're, you're fine. Yeah, you know, it goes back to me when you use the word normalize how very few lawyers even now will disclose that they've got mental health issues or substance use issues and how worried they are in their firms if they need, for example, to go to rehab. I mean, it broke my heart during and, and still during the pandemic that I knew people who lost long-term sobriety because they couldn't have the social connection of their meetings. They had gone virtual, it's not the same, especially for that. And they, they acknowledged that they needed to go, literally go inpatient, not partial. They needed to go inpatient. And yet they were afraid because they might have been up for partner in a year or two. And would that be a black mark on their record? And, you know, we have got to get past that. Yeah, you know? I yearn for the day where that kind of disclosure would be regarded as an act of courage you know, rather than some kind of black mark. And, and, and to be fair, there are places where there is more sophistication and understanding, but for most folks, they, they really do believe that in, you know, to, to disclose something like that, that, that it's a career killer and we have to change that. We just have to. Yeah. And I mean, I think the fear, sometimes it might not even be realistic on the part of the person who's afraid, but is so ingrained, right? you know, because there's so few role models of someone, I guess, in, in many of these firms who have gone up for partner and the year before went to rehab and disclosed and everybody knew it, you know, there, there's just not a lot of, the, of that around. Well, I actually consider this Stacy part A because <laughs> we're going to have to have a Stacy part B and C and, and whatever. But I think for now, we'll wrap it up. I just want to know, do you have any final thoughts, anything that you haven't shared that you'd like to? I don't think so. We've covered we've covered a lot. And I guess I would just say to folks, you know, just remember that, you know, be kind to yourselves, be gentle to yourselves be kind to others because we're all, we're all, this has been a particularly difficult time with the pandemic and all of the, the racialized violence and the political upheaval. This has been really hard for folks. And so just really be kind to ourselves and to each other and, and take care of ourselves. Great advice. And you remind me, because it's not just one thing. You know, it's not just the pandemic, it's just not the racialized violence, it's not just the politics, it's everything loaded into one basket over a single period of time. It's, you know, someday we'll look back on this and just be astounded, I hope, <laughs> that we will be soon looking back on this and, and just be astounded. Well, thank you so much. As I said, we've been trying to do this for a long time and I'm so delighted that we did. I always say this at the end, in this case, it has more meaning to me. I hope you and your family stay safe and well after what you've described to me, you know, that I know that you've got particular challenges in that regard. And I wish that for you and the same to everybody who's listening. And I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Lawyers Living Well. I can't promise it'll be as robust as this one. I will definitely try. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Lynn Garson, Chair of the Lawyer Assistance Program. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lawyers Living Well. If you need immediate confidential help, call the LAP hotline at 1-800-327-9631. That's 1-800-327-9631. You can also visit lawyerslivingwell.org for more wellness resources through the State Bar of Georgia. That's lawyerslivingwell.org. We hope you can join us next time.